Welcome to Four Questions Four, the official podcast of Osgood Hall Law School, presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Professor Sarah Slynn, Associate Dean, Research and Institutional Relations at Osgood, and a labor law expert, will have four questions for fellow labor law expert, Osgood Professor Eric Tucker, on the topic of workplace obligations of employers and employees during the pandemic. Professor Eric Tucker has been teaching at Osgood Hall Law School since 1981. He has published extensively in the fields of occupational health and safety regulation and labor and employment law. He's also been involved in law reform initiatives through his participation on the boards of Ontario community clinics focused on occupational health and safety and workers' compensation. He was a co-investigator on a partnership grant with the Workers' Action Centre, examining the enforcement of employment standards in Ontario. He has also co-authored several studies for various organizations on a range of subjects, including the legal definition of employment, reproductive hazards in the workplace, and employment standards complaints and their resolution. In addition, he has acted as an expert witness for unions challenging the constitutionality of legislation that excludes or limits workers' rights. Welcome, Eric. So let's get started with question one. Can employers require employees to be vaccinated as a condition of coming to work? Well, first, Sarah, thank you for that uh, introduction. Uh, And, you know, these kinds of questions are, of course, on on many people's minds. And I wish there was a very simple answer, yes or no. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, as is so often the case, there's a fair bit of complexity. Uh, So to begin, uh, the first uh, real issue that has to be addressed are human rights concerns. Uh, because under our law, employers have a duty to accommodate to the point of undue hardship uh, workers uh, with disabilities and and also uh, 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 individuals' uh, religious beliefs. And so to the extent that there are individuals for whom uh, vaccinations uh, would not be recommended on the basis of a medical condition, Uh, then there's no doubt that the employer would be required to adapt their policy to accommodate those workers uh, to the point of undue hardship. And that's kind of uh, where things might be a little bit complicated. Uh, I'm assuming here that we're talking about situations in which workers have to attend at their employer's premises in order to perform their work. Uh, But for example, if there was a worker for whom uh, there were medical indications that they shouldn't get vaccinated, then accommodation might, for example, uh, 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 involve considering whether or not there was some work that that uh, worker could perform from home uh, without being vaccinated and and still yet uh, remaining at work. If that wasn't possible, then uh, uh, it would become a question, right, of what the limits of accommodation would be. My guess would uh, is that uh, given the importance of uh, 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 protecting workers and protecting the communities in which uh, workers uh, uh, you know are employed, that uh, uh, in most cases I would think uh, that undue hardship uh, would not uh, or accommodations wouldn't require employers to permit uh, unvaccinated workers uh, to come onto their premises. 
Now, beyond the human rights uh, question, though, uh, are the, is the more general question, what are the limits uh, of uh, an employer's ability to insist uh, that workers be vaccinated uh, uh, as a condition of coming to work? Uh, and here we have to distinguish very sharply between the situation of unionized workers and non-unionized workers. In the unionized context, uh, employers have uh, what are called residual management rights. So to the extent that their uh, rights are not limited by the collective agreement, then generally speaking, employers can make decisions uh, about how to operate uh, you know, their businesses uh, and uh, deal with matters relating to uh, employee uh, discipline. But they have to exercise those powers in a way that is reasonable, uh, and that takes into account important employee concerns, such as privacy. Uh, and so on that basis, for example, arbitrators have held that employers can't uh, implement mandatory drug testing policies, except in very limited uh, circumstances. So that raises a question. If a union wanted to challenge an employer policy that mandated vaccinations, uh, they could do so, what would an arbitrator uh, say in those circumstances? And again, assuming that those policies are compliant with human rights obligations, uh, again, it's a matter of prediction. My guess would be uh, that uh, uh, arbitrators would hold uh, a mandatory vaccination policy for the reason that, again, related to the importance of protecting uh, workers uh, in that location and also uh, the communities, right, in which uh, workers live who would be affected if there was an outbreak. Uh, now, that having said that, what would happen to a unionized worker who refused to get vaccinated? Uh, and uh, again, I think uh, an arbitrator would be prepared to say that those employees could be suspended without pay uh, until uh, they get vaccinated. Uh, but I don't think that an arbitrator would allow those employees to be fired uh, 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 because of uh, the protection that unionized employers uh, have against uh, termination except for just cause. For non-unionized workers, it's a bit more uh, also complicated. They don't have a mechanism for challenging employer policies uh, other than to sort of take the extreme measure and saying that change, that's a change in the terms and conditions of my employment. It's a fundamental breach of my contract. I'm going to I'm going to treat that as if I was terminated and seek uh, damages for wrongful dismissal. Frankly, uh, I don't think there are many workers who would uh, take that option. But even if they did, I doubt that a court would uh, see uh, an employer policy of that sort uh, as really constituting a, uh, uh, effectively a, a termination. Uh, but I also don't think that employers could terminate uh, uh, workers who refuse to get vaccinated. I think the most likely, uh, always they couldn't terminate them without giving them notice. Uh, uh, employers uh, in the non-unionized setting can always terminate employees uh, by giving them notice unless it's a, uh, uh, there's a, uh, an unlawful reason for the termination. Uh, but they probably could suspend them uh, without pay uh, until they uh, got vaccinated. It's a it's a bit of a difficult area in individual employment law, but I suspect in these particular circumstances, uh, courts would be willing to uphold uh, suspensions without pay. So it's a long-winded answer to a, a, a straightforward question, but that's uh, it is one of those areas where there's a lot of complications that are associated uh, uh, with answering the question. Thanks very much, Eric.
Uh, and this brings me to question two. So can workers refuse unsafe work because of concern about workplace infections? And uh, what about healthcare workers and teachers? Do they have the same right to refuse as other workers might have? Right. And again, this is a very important question. And we've heard news reports uh, throughout the period of the pandemic uh, uh, at various occasions that workers have uh, refused uh, uh, work on the basis that you know, they were being exposed uh, to COVID and that the risks of infection, in their view, were uh, just uh, uh, unacceptable. Uh, and we've also heard more recently, right, uh, that there's growing recognition uh, of the role of uh, workplace exposures in, in the spread of COVID. There was an article, I think, a few weeks ago in one of our uh, newspapers uh, reporting on that. So this is happening not just in uh, to healthcare workers in long-term care homes or to teachers, uh, but also to uh, agricultural migrant agricultural workers on farms in southwestern Ontario and in uh, uh, meatpacking plants and in industrial bakeries. So it's a, you know, in any setting where large numbers of people are brought together and have to remain indoors or 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 just in close proximity, uh, there are real uh, risks as we've come to understand. So it's understandable that workers in those settings are. Uh, quite concerned. And under Canadian law, workers do have a right to refuse unsafe work uh, without uh, suffering retaliation uh, for doing so. Although, of course, workers are often very reluctant to exercise their rights uh, because they are concerned uh, about the possibility of retaliation. Uh, but that said, uh, they do have uh, the right. Uh, in order to exercise that right, uh, a worker, at least in the first instance, just really has to have a, a good faith belief that the work is likely to cause them or another worker uh, harm. And, and uh, so at that first stage, they say, I'm not going to do this. Uh, the law requires that there's an internal investigation uh, by the employer. Uh, and if that internal investigation doesn't uh, resolve the matter to the satisfaction of the worker, they can continue uh, their refusal, and at which time uh, a inspector uh, from the Ministry of Labor is called to investigate the situation. And so we've seen, right, heard of a number of, uh, a large number of cases where uh, uh, inspectors have been called to workplaces and, and then have investigated uh, the situation. Now, oftentimes the inspector will arrive and say, uh, in my view, nothing more needs to be done. The workplace uh, meets, uh, you know, sort of the statutory requirements. And so uh, the, the worker refused, but uh, uh, there really wasn't a hazard here. Now, even if that happens, it doesn't mean that the refusal was unlawful or unjustified. It just means uh, uh, that the worker, uh, in, in the inspector's view, uh, was wrong about the situation, but doesn't therefore, or shouldn't be subjected to punishment, right? Because they made that error in judgment. As long as they were acting reasonably, uh, then uh, they were justified in conducting the refusal. Uh, now that's for most workers. Uh, you, we, uh, Sarah, you asked uh, specifically about uh, teachers and healthcare workers, and because, of course, we've heard uh, on, on a number of occasions, right, where there have been uh, work refusals, and they actually have a more limited uh, right to refuse than uh, other workers. Uh, under our statutory schemes, they can, can't refuse uh, if the risk to which they're being exposed is a normal condition of their work, 
or if their work refusal would uh, endanger the people uh, who are under uh, their care. Uh, so, of course, uh, in terms of the uh, endangerment concern, of course, uh, a worker, uh, you know, while they're on duty, for example, with patients or uh, with students in the classroom, couldn't simply walk out uh, because that would endanger the, the workers. But they might not, you know, but the other things, uh, but they could refuse to come to work the next day, right? Subject to the second issue about whether the risk uh, that they're concerned about is considered to be a normal condition uh, of their work. Uh, so uh, a simple example, I, a teacher, uh, you know, teachers are exposed to childhood, you know, kids bear, uh, carry germs and all kinds of things. Teachers are likely to get uh, sick more frequently than other adults who aren't as exposed to children. Uh, a, a worker would not, a teacher wouldn't be able to refuse work because they're concerned about, you know, getting sick generally, right? That's just a normal condition of being in a classroom with kids. When you throw COVID into the mix though, right, that might change the scenario. So what's normal uh, might, you know, sort of depend on the particular setting. It might be different for healthcare workers than it is for teachers. The other important point is uh, a risk is not normal if the employer has failed to take the kinds of precautions that are necessary in order to reduce the risks in ways that are reasonable right in those circumstances. So, you know, a refusal to put up barriers or to provide a personal protective equipment, right, that it exposes workers to excessive risks uh, uh, would not therefore be considered normal risk. So in a healthcare setting, right, if a worker wasn't being prepared, uh, provided with uh, the necessary uh, personal protective equipment, uh, then even though there's a risk of infection in a healthcare setting, that's not normal, right? Uh, when you don't have the uh, protections that uh, would be considered uh, appropriate in those circumstances. Uh, so there is a right to refuse, but it's a more constrained uh, right to refuse in those particular circumstances. Uh, do you have a sense of whether the right to refuse unsafe work has uh, operated satisfactorily in, in the COVID context? It's hard to tell. I don't. Uh, uh, I don't. Uh, I've seen some data, but not enough. And, and there's also there's, It's a peculiar thing because remember I talked about uh, refusals happening in two stages, right? There's a stage that triggers an internal investigation, and then there's a stage that triggers a Ministry of Labor inspection. We don't have any data on first stage refusals. It's not collected, it, it's resolved internally. So unless there was some really well-designed research that was conducted uh, to find out about what was going on at that first stage, uh, we really uh, don't know. Uh, in terms of Ministry of Labor inspections, uh, uh, responses to uh, work refusals, uh, I think what we've heard is that they've gone out on a, a few thousand, uh, I think, refusals but they've rarely issued orders uh, requiring employers to take additional precautions. So that's not so much a question of whether the work refusal, well, I guess one could argue that workers are refusing excessively, uh, but sort of given the legitimate uh, uh, level of concern that workers have, uh, I, I would be disinclined to draw that inference. The other question then is uh, whether or not inspectors 
are responding appropriately uh, by uh, issuing orders. Uh, there's a, been a real concern that uh, Ministry of Labor inspectors have been, uh, there's a kind of intersection of two inspection systems. There's the public health inspections and the Ministry of Labor inspections. And there's some sense that the Ministry of Labor inspectors may uh, be uh, uh, quite deferential uh, to what uh, public health authorities are saying. And, you know, there th may just be a bit of a gap, uh, perhaps, uh, in that regard. But it's a question that is not easy to answer and I think would definitely require uh, careful uh, investigation to understand exactly what's going on. Thanks, Eric. That's that's very interesting. And it's certainly a new scenario, both for public health and for health and safety inspectors and the health and safety system to grapple with. Yeah. And it also is happening on farms where there's a, the other level uh, of where migrant agricultural workers are residing on farms. And so their housing is, is kind of within the jurisdiction of local public health authorities. And so Ministry of Labor inspectors don't go into the housing. Uh, and, and yet there are concerns that there isn't a sufficient inspection uh, by the local public health authorities to ensure that uh, there are uh, proper arrangements, uh, sleeping arrangements uh, being provided. And that's been a huge source of uh, concern in the uh, for migrant agricultural workers. Yeah, given the rate of infections and the apparent source of significant cases among those types of workplaces and among those kinds of workers, that certainly is a very concerning uh, insight. So this brings us to question three. Uh, what obligations do employers owe to employees who have caregiving obligations due to COVID? Yeah, you know, that's, it's, it's an interesting question because, of course, the whole issue of uh, the accommodation of caregiving responsibilities uh, was one that preexisted uh, COVID. It's been a, a large concern, particularly, you know, uh, in the decades since women, married women and married women with children have returned to the labor force, uh, and they uh, often continue to bear primary responsibility for much of the caregiving that's required. And that's created that whole uh, work uh, uh, caregiving tension, right? And, and COVID has exacerbated it because, of course, uh, you know, the arrangements that uh, families had often depended on, which meant that children were in school during the day, uh, uh, collapsed, right, when uh, uh, children uh, were at home. Uh, plus, of course, the added uh, 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 burden of having more sick adults or, or sick children, right, who require uh, 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 you know, significant amounts of care for the period uh, of their illness. So we have two kinds of responses uh, to these issues. Uh, one is uh, under our employment standards laws, uh, workers can, uh, get, can be entitled to unpaid leaves. Uh, including uh, caregiving leaves. And we have uh, special provisions that have been enacted to deal with situations of pandemics uh, to uh, provide for more extensive uh, uh, unpaid leave uh, entitlements uh, during a pandemic. Uh, uh, and to, uh, and now those are unpaid leaves. Of course, we also know that the federal government has expanded entitlements uh, to emergency uh, uh, income replacement uh, benefits uh, for people in that individual. So that's uh, made it more possible for people to be able to afford 
uh, uh, to take uh, unpaid uh, leave uh, uh, leaves for these purposes. Uh, but there's a second, uh, uh, you know, in some cases it may not require or, or someone might prefer not to take a complete leave, but they would like to have their work schedule altered. Uh, so to enable them to stay at work, if not full-time, at least part-time, uh, while they are fulfilling their, their, their caregiving uh, responsibilities. And so under the Human Rights Code, we have a prohibition on discrimination on the basis of family status, uh, which the, the definition of family status can vary somewhat, but it's mostly uh, defined in terms of being in a parent and child uh, relationship. Uh, so uh, uh, so uh, uh, courts and, and human rights tribunals have interpreted that as saying that under certain circumstances, employers have a duty to accommodate childcare or, or caring for a parent uh, 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 responsibilities by, uh, uh, to the point of undue hardship, which might require schedule changes or, or other kinds of alterations in the normal uh, uh, arrangements that an individual has for work. Uh, unfortunately, though, uh, it, it, there's been a lot of reluctance uh, in courts and tribunals uh, to open this up too broadly. Uh, and so as a result, there have been, an, and it varies really uh, depending on which jurisdiction you live in. In some uh, jurisdictions, it's a much more narrow entitlement. In some places, the before you're entitled to uh, uh, get accommodations from your employer, you have to show that you've taken, done everything possible, right, to uh, self-accommodate uh, for your caregiving uh, responsibilities. And so uh, you can't even get to a point at which uh, you can turn to your employer and say, you have to accommodate me. Uh, in other provinces, it's been a little bit looser, and so the uh, uh, a right to demand an accommodation uh, is uh, somewhat greater. As well, under the uh, federal uh, Canada Labor Code for those workers who are covered uh, by it, there was recently some changes uh, that uh, entitled workers to uh, uh, ask for uh, uh, flexibility uh, this isn't in terms of caregiving, but just in general to uh, uh, ask their employers for a change in hours of work or other related matters. And their employers have to consider that change and provide a reason for uh, not doing it. So that's an even broader uh, kind of entitlement uh, that might be helpful uh, for a uh, worker who's uh, you know, sort of dealing uh, with a situation in which they need accommodation uh, for their uh, caregiving responsibilities. So Eric, now we've come to our final question, question four. So when the pandemic is over and things are more or less back to normal, do you think that there uh, will still be some lingering unresolved labor law issues facing employers and employees? And if so, uh, what might be the most significant of these issues? Yeah, you know, we're all longing for the day to get back to the normal problems, <laughs> right, of, of labor uh, and employment law, as difficult as they might be. But just to be back there, it's like, oh, I can't wait for that. Uh, uh, you know, I think what we'll find uh, when this is over is that uh, some things may not be the same uh, as they were 
when we uh, first uh, started. So, uh, you know, one could easily see, for example, that, uh, you know, the, the working from home, right, which uh, has, there always were some teleworkers or, you know, some uh, uh, aspects of home working uh, may actually continue at a level uh, that is far greater than it was uh, prior to COVID. And, and you know, there was a, Another era where we were very concerned about homeworking in uh, in garment making back at the turn of the 20th century, right? Uh, uh, there was subcontracting. You had people setting up shops in their own homes and working under unsanitary conditions and fears about uh, disease. And so we had some uh, response to those conditions, but there really hasn't been uh, a lot of thought, I think, in recent years uh, about how our labor and employment law our regime. Uh, would apply in that uh, context. So, uh, for example, if workers are working at home, uh, how do hours of work regulations apply? Employers are not supposed to allow uh, workers uh, to work more than, uh, uh, you know, sort of the statutory uh, minimum. But, uh, you know, what, how does that going to, how would that operate for workers, uh, at, at, uh, you know, employed uh, in their own homes for occupational health and safety? Uh, again, employers have a duty to provide, uh, uh, you know, healthy and safe work environments. But uh, how does that obligation apply when workers are working at home? Inspectors, uh, Ministry of Labor inspectors have no uh, entitlement to go into uh, uh, people's residences, uh, you know, to inspect work that the owner or the occupant of that residence is doing. Uh, so we may have to do some, uh, uh, you know, sort of thinking. Uh, about how to approach this new kind of way of organizing and arranging work. Uh, you know, on the other issue, of course, we'll get back to where we were before and we'll have to deal with uh, some trends uh, that uh, indeed may be exacerbated uh, uh, by what has happened over the past eight months. By the time we get back, it'd be probably a bit over a year. Uh, we've seen, for example, a lot of concern about the growth of precarious employment, uh, you know, part-time work, temporary work, uh, own account, uh, individual contracting. Uh, those trends might be accelerated uh, by what we've uh, gone through. Uh, and so these raise very, very difficult questions that we've been grappling with. Who is an employee for the purposes of protective labor and employment law? Who is the employer or what entity right, can be made responsible uh, for the statutory obligations that we impose on employers. These are all very difficult questions, uh, and there's no doubt that they're going to remain uh, difficult uh, questions that the labor and employment law regime will have to uh, grapple with uh, in the aftermath uh, of this pandemic. But I can't wait to get to the stage where we can say we're in the aftermath, because that in itself will be a great, a great thing. Thank you very much, Eric. That's really been very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Four Questions Four by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time.